I don't think I told Bob you couldn't talk. I said, just don't preach a sermon before. So I think those were the exact words. Um, no, thankful for that. Really quickly before we jump in, um, word of congratulations. Uh, Calvary, our school hosted a, a Thanksgiving tournament uh, this past weekend. And uh, congratulations to the varsity girls team. They won, uh, came away with that. Yeah, I believe this is actually their second tournament win as well. And their season's early in. So congrats uh, to the varsity girls and uh, their, their victory this past weekend. Uh, this weekend also, well, obviously we celebrate Thanksgiving. I love this time of year just a to, to, to pause for a moment and to think of that which you're thankful for. So even this morning driving in, it was beautiful out there, uh, just gorgeous with the snowfall. And I, I get here pretty early uh, in the mornings on Sundays, and uh, there's already a couple guys out there shoveling uh, the snow, getting the parking lot all cleared. Uh, I was just so grateful for them and what they're doing, hospitality team getting here early to welcome people, the worship team who gets here early uh, to practice and driving through the snow and everything. Just so grateful for uh, the, the people here at, the, uh, at Calvary and their willingness to serve and to not uh, crave the spotlight whatsoever. Just so much to be thankful for uh, in this ministry as God continues to, to work. And, uh, and so we're going to jump into to Judges 8 here. We're coming to the, the end now of, of Gideon's story uh, that we've been walking through for the past few chapters. As we jump into this, uh, you know, maybe we've all seen uh, videos of people uh, running marathons. You, you've seen those. And, and you see uh, some people who run these 26 miles and toward the end, you, you ever seen those, those videos of where their bodies just begin to just give out? Uh, toward the end of the race. It's actually a pretty painful thing to watch uh, that happened to another person because their, their body is like shutting down. Uh, you've seen those images, right? Their legs are, are, are flailing, come around. They're, they're all over the place. They cannot stand up. They're stumbling over. They're falling to the ground. Like I said, it's, it's hard to watch that happen to another uh, human being, but it's their fault for running 26 miles. But uh, have you ever seen uh, a, a race? you ever seen a race where um, something like that happens to someone, the runner in front of them, and the person who's running behind them still, for whatever reason, has enough strength um, um, and, and they lift them up. You've seen those, right, where they kind of lift this person up and, and carry them to that finish line. And I've seen videos even where runners will do that. They'll pick a person up, and then they'll run them to the finish line, and then they'll let that person finish ahead of them. And so the guy could have just kept going and, and beat that person, but they lift him up. No, you finish ahead of, of me. Now, can you imagine if, if you saw something like that happen at the end of a race and the person who couldn't make it across that finish line on their own, but finishes that, 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 that race with the help of somebody, but then as soon as they cross that finish line, they begin beating their chest. Look what I've done, pumping their fist in the air, right? Holding up a number one, signifying I'm the best. Look what I have done. And then turning to the person who just helped them, but came in now second and then taunting them. Can, can you imagine if you saw that happen in a, in a race, that would be one of the most probably despicable things that, that you could actually see. Well, it's kind of the, the picture we're sadly seeing in the life of Gideon as his time in Judges is coming to a close. God had given him in Israel this decisive victory over, over their enemy, and now Gideon is to some degree kind of beating his chest a little bit and starting to walk around and, and acting like he's this victorious king who's who's defeated the enemy all on his own. 
The last few chapters of Judges, if, if you've been with us, they've shown this trajectory in, in Gideon's life. It began in, in chapter 6 with Gideon as kind of this man of fear and weakness and, 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 and won by his own admission. But God was bringing him along to this place of courage and of faith in, in, in his God. One whom God built up and, and used to deliver Israel from their enemies, the Midianites. And, and now we're, we're starting to see now the battle's over the, the, the enemy has been subdued, and, and now we're kind of seeing this decline toward self-centeredness and idolatry in Gideon's life and even in Israel's life. If you remember from last week, God had a concern with Gideon and with Israel and, and, in chapter 7, and, and, and the concern that God had was, listen, there's too many people going into this battle with you, Gideon, because the temptation is going to be for you to boast in yourself, so I need, to, I need to whittle this down. And so even though God gave Gideon this victory with only 300 men, it was this clear showing of God's power and his presence we're starting to see here, though, him kind of strutting around, acting as though he's the victor. It's going to show that the tendency we have as human beings is, is one that just quickly boasts in ourselves. That any type of success in life that the Lord gives us, we can so easily twist and manipulate into to something that we boast in. And, and beating our chest and saying, look what I have done. It goes to show how, how fickle our hearts are how prone we are to, to wandering when, when we do not daily keep our eyes fixed on our God, just how quick that can happen in our lives. Seeing this, this decline in Gideon's life should cause us then to ask, well, how can I guard my heart from drifting away from God's good presence and his good rule when, when I'm faced with this daily temptation to set my affections on the things of this world and and when I'm faced daily with this temptation, I want to boast in the work of my hands. It's this daily temptation to be uppermost in our thoughts and our affections, to boast in, in ourselves and to forget the grace and the mercy and the power and the, and the might of God in our lives. Judges 8 is, is going to be this warning to us from the life of Gideon. Because like Gideon, our hearts are easily swayed by the, the cares and temptations of this world. Like Gideon, our hearts, can we be honest, we, we crave power. We crave recognition. Our hearts crave acceptance from others. And we, and we so easily and so quickly believe this lie that we're sufficient in and of ourselves. However, what we need to see from scriptures is that since, since nothing good, nothing good is possible apart from the hand of God, our boasting must be in him and not in our accomplishments. So the, so the text that we heard read this morning, uh, it, it takes us to a time that's following God's deliverance of Israel from the hands of the Midianites. Now, we've, we've skipped a little bit uh, over the past couple of weeks, but let me just bring us up to, to speed on where we are this week from where we're catching up in verse 22 for context, but also to kind of help us begin to see what, what was the start of Gideon's spiritual decline here. Last week we ended in chapter 7 with, with Gideon having his 300 men. And, and we ended last week with Gideon being full of courage, remember? Full of courage, full of faith, full of trust in his God, leading the people. Let's go. God's given us this, uh, this, this victory here over the enemy. 
And chapter 7 ends, we didn't read it last week, but it ends with that exact, that exact thing happening. In fact, the 300 men who go into battle against the, the Midianites here, they, they really don't, if you read the end of chapter 7, they don't even have to lift a finger, basically. They don't have to lift a sword against the Midianites in this moment. They, they surround them during the night. They, God tells them, okay, blow your, your trumpets, and they blow the trumpets. They hold torches up in their, their left hand, and, and God causes this mass confusion to come amongst the Midianites, so much so that, that they begin to all run, and as they're running, they're turning on each other, thinking whether that, maybe that's the enemy, this is, and they, they begin to just kill each other. It's this crazy battle that was really over within just a few moments, and the 300 really didn't do anything. So, so the remaining Midianites, along with their leaders, they're, they're running away in full panic mode. So, so as the, the leaders of the Midianites are running, as the, the last little remnant of that, that, uh, that, those troops are with them running, Gideon then calls on the tribes of Israel to say, okay, go pursue them now. Go pursue them. So these tribes of Israel, who just a day earlier were terrified to go into battle, are now strengthened because God had severely weakened and wounded the Midianites. So God's hand is seen all throughout chapter 7 in this victory Unfortunately, when we turn to chapter 8, there's really not a recognition or mentioning of God any longer. And you begin to see this kind of decline in Gideon and Israel. Israel's going to forget him. So now, these other tribes, though, uh, chapter 8 would say, are entering into the battle. They chase them down. Uh, the end of chapter 7 into chapter 8, uh, there's these soldiers from the tribe of Ephraim. They capture a couple of the princes of Midian, and then they execute them. And so now Ephraim's feeling pretty good about themselves. Look what we did. We defeated these princes. At the beginning of chapter 8, Gideon and his 300 men, they're in this pursuit of these two kings of Midian, along with about 15,000 soldiers who still remain. Now, we see actually in chapter 8 that the Midianite army was well over 120,000 strong when Gideon went up against it with only 300 men. God had whittled it down now to 15,000, and like I said, they're in full panic mode, just running away from, from Israel. Now, during Gideon's pursuit of these, this, this remnant of these kings, he and his men, it says, are just exhausted. They're exhausted. So they come to a couple cities in Israel, and they ask for aid. They ask for them to give them food and water to help them in their pursuit. Well, these, these two uh, cities turn them down, say no to Gideon, say, you haven't finished the job yet, Gideon. Go kill those kings, then come and ask us for food and for water. And so Gideon's response to this denial, again, it shows just the disunity even with, within and among Israel. But Gideon's response to their denial of help is, I think, where we begin to see a little bit of the, uh, the, the spiritual decline in his life because his response to that is one of outrage and, and promises vengeance upon them. He says, as soon as I kill these kings, I'm coming back for you. And then he tells them, here's what I'm going to do to you when I come back. So Gideon leaves. He's pursuing this, this, the, the Midianites with 300 men, finally captures the two kings. He, he, he then tries to humiliate them. For, for some reason, Gideon's young son is with him. Uh, Gideon says, I want you to kill these two kings. His son, I, we don't know how old, but he, he's pretty young because he's terrified to do it. Never done anything like that, obviously, before. And so Gideon does the job himself. Gideon, at this point, is starting to feel pretty good about himself. Look what I've done. Look what I've accomplished. Look who I just killed. These two kings. 
And then he returns to these two Israelite cities who denied him and his men help. And one of the cities, he drags all of the leaders out and beats them with these whips made of thorns. He goes to the other city and he tears down this massive tower which kills their leaders. All that takes us then to verse 22 today. The, 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 the killing of those leaders from that tower is the last thing we read now leading into verse 22 of what was read for us this morning. Now the people of Israel are united, but they're united not under the rule of God. They're united under what they want to be the rule of Gideon. And they demand or ask a request of Gideon that, Gideon, you need to rule over us. You, your son, and your grandson, they're saying, we want to start a kingly dynasty with you. We want to come underneath your sovereign reign, Gideon, because we've seen what you have done. Israel is in no way, even after this clear, divinely empowered victory over Midian, is recognizing God's hand, not recognizing God's presence, his power, his authority. They're not returning to being this people that are governed and ruled by their God. They instead immediately are looking to Gideon and demand, you need to be our king, now, if you remember from last week, chapter 7, this was the, this was the concern God had that, that would happen in their hearts. What was the purpose of God pruning Gideon's army down from 32,000 all the way down to 300? Well, we see it in chapter 7, verse 2. Let me just really quickly remind us. That said, the Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. So here we are now. Israel's free from the the oppression and the tyranny of the Midianites. With only 300 men, they took down an army of over 120,000. And they want to come underneath the leadership and rule of Gideon rather than their God. In this moment here, in verse 22, it's a pivotal moment in the life of Gideon. He has a, he, the, the spotlight's on him in this moment. He is being exalted for his leadership, exalted for his courage, his strength, his might. Look look what you've done, Gideon. This is what all of Israel is coming around him, saying to him. This is a pivotal moment because Gideon, in this moment, I believe he's at a crossroads. He's at a crossroads where he can either lead the people to submit to God, to treasure and delight in, in their God. No, no, God had delivered us. We need to come underneath his reign, his rule. And I know you're thinking, well, he did say that. We'll get to that in just a moment. Where he can lead them to say, no, we're going to come underneath his sovereign reign, which will lead us into life and lead us into this joy. Now, it'll take the spotlight off of him, but it's going to, it's going to make Israel flourish. He can go that direction. But like I said, Doing so is going to take the spotlight off of him, but he'll lead the people into joy. He can either do that, or he can lead the people into further self-centeredness, into further wickedness, into further decay where, no, I, I did do this. Look what I have done. Where he can, no, I can make a name for myself here. This feels really good in this moment to be exalted as I am. See, the temptation Gideon faces in this moment is the same temptation you and I face feels good to be noticed. feels good to be noticed. feels good to be like recognized. It feels good to be accepted. It feels good to have power and control and authority. It feels good to have the applause of others, to be in that spotlight. 
Yet the further we dive into the the depths of self-centeredness, self-adulation, man-centered praise and exaltation, the further we drift away from God's presence, the further we drift away from God's good design, again, for our joy, for for our flourishing in this life. Like we were created to to, to have the spotlight not on ourselves. In fact, the, the more that we seek to absorb the spotlight, the more actually shriveled up we become. We were created to reflect, not absorb. We're reflectors, not absorbers. We reflect the spotlight. We reflect the glory of God back onto our great God. That's what we are created for. And it's only in that moment there, in that, that season of life where we're reflecting that we actually find strength and in, in, in life and how we are meant to live. Again, so the question before us this morning is, how can I guard my heart from drifting away from God's presence and drifting into self-absorption and self-rule and self-love when this daily temptation of my heart is, I, I want it. I want it so badly. I want to set my affections on, on things of this world. I want the spotlight so badly. Well, from Gideon's life, I want to give us three things that we must do that we see Gideon actually fail to do which would have guarded his heart at this pivotal moment in his life where they are calling on him to rule over them. Number one, we must acknowledge and confess your desire to rule over your life. There's other words you could, you could place in there as well, not just this desire to rule, but desire for spotlight, desire for acceptance, desire for recognition, right? We, we need to acknowledge and confess that this is our heart. This is what we do crave, See, in verse 23, it seems, it seems as though Gideon is seeking to lead the people in the right direction, to lead them to submit to God. It, it appears as though he's not wanting the spotlight, because it says in verse 23, Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Now, if the, if the story of Gideon's life ended there, if, if verse 23 was the last verse recorded in Gideon's life, we would say he got it. He got it, and he's leading the people to treasure God. The problem is, we've got verse 24, and verse 25, and verse 26, and verse 27. Really, the problem we have with Gideon at this moment in his life is we have the remainder of chapter 8. You see, what takes place right after Gideon says these words, to only let the Lord rule over you, is that he, he begins to demand tribute. He begins to demand payment for what he thinks He's accomplished in in defeating Midian. He has them lay down the gold, their spoil. It said 1,700 shekels in the the tax house, over 43 pounds of gold that was just laid at his feet. See, Gideon said he didn't want to rule, but his life from this point forward showed, no, you you do want to rule. You do want to you do want to be king. We don't have time to even get into this, but the end of chapter eight starts talking about his 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 kids that he had with multiple wives, and he had one kid uh, with a concubine that he named, and we'll talk about this uh, in the new year when we get to chapter nine. Abimelech, but Abimelech is Gideon's son. Abimelech it means literally, my father is king. He named his son, my father is king. And yet here he says, I don't want to be king. But yet he names one of his kids, my father is king, by giving him Abimelech. Everything in Gideon's life from this point forward shows, no, I I do want this. I do want the spotlight. Gideon, I believed in verse 22, understood the right thing to say, or verse 23, understood the right thing to say in the moment. 
but he either was deceiving himself, lying to himself, or just simply not understanding the state of his heart and how much it craved the spotlight when it was put on him. If we're going to guard our hearts from drifting away from God's good rule, from his presence, then we have to acknowledge. You need to acknowledge that your heart is prone to wandering, is prone to these things, that, that we do our, ourselves no good if we lie to ourselves and say, nope, I've got it. I, I, I'm in control. I'm all good. This isn't a temptation of mine. I can handle this temptation when it comes. No big deal. I don't need help from anyone. I'm good. I'm set. I'm on a solid foundation. Like when we, when we say these things and, 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 and live this way, that's if this is really a temptation everyone else faces, not me, I've conquered this, then this is where we put ourselves into a lot of danger. If we don't understand our own weakness, instead are deceived into thinking that we're capable and strong in and of ourselves, that we know the right things to say and when to say them, then the danger is, is we're going to fall away. And I, I, believe this, I believe we actually do this probably more than we, than we realize. What did we sing this morning? We sang songs of the holiness of God. We could sing all morning of the holiness of God. Of God. And what we proclaimed this morning as a, as a church is truth. God is holy. God, you are holy. But we can leave this place in, a, in, in 20, 30 minutes from now and within an hour be living in such a way that shows, well, we don't actually believe that God is holy. We can say the right things all day long, but, but we can also live in such a way that shows we actually don't believe that. We see that all throughout the Old Testament. People saying one thing but completely living contrary to what they're saying. Just because we know the right things to say doesn't mean we always live by them. And we can be really quick at rattling off Christian phrases while our lives and our actions reveal what we actually truly are believing in. And so the first thing we need to do if we're going to guard our hearts from drifting into this this self-adulation, this self-boasting, this self-centeredness is to acknowledge that our hearts do desire this. They do desire this. They do desire to rule, and then we confess it. We confess that to the Lord. Yes, God, that is my heart. It's, it is prone to wander, as the song would say, Lord, I feel it. And so, so God, keep me, guard me, watch over me, protect me. I'm sure we all heard of uh, one of the most famous tragedies to ever uh, take place in human history was the, the sinking of the, 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 the Titanic back in, I think it was 1914, somewhere around there. And so we, we all know that that took place, but sometimes what, what isn't as well known is, you know, the ship was built and branded as the unsinkable ship, right? And so uh, the builders, the designers even would say, you know, God himself could not sink this ship. And, and that was kind of the common uh, catchphrase around the Titanic. And uh, yet what, what's not commonly known is that there were multiple design flaws with the Titanic that the builders knew about, that the designers knew about. Uh, they, in, in, in order to cut costs, they used cheap rivets and cheap welding and cheap metals, and, and they had uh, the, the, the putting together of it was even weakened in certain areas, and they knew all these things, and they knew they had watertight compartments below, but they, they also knew that if the ship began to tilt or the tip, that those watertight compartments would do absolutely nothing. Uh, they even said that even if tragedy struck, this ship will still stay afloat for two to three to four days. Well, it, it sunk within a couple of hours. 
Even while they're charging ahead that, that fateful night, they were getting multiple warnings from ships ahead of them that there's icebergs ahead. There are icebergs in the ocean. And, and so to, to be on guard, watch out for these things. And yet we, we probably heard the story. No, they charged ahead. They're trying to make good time, right? So, th- so they're believing this, this lie of the branding that they placed around this ship that nothing bad could happen. And yet as soon as that iceberg hit, the ship was down at the bottom of the ocean in just a few short hours. See, this is the danger of living a deceived life. They knew that these red flags were out there. They knew of these warning signs, and yet they, they decided to believe the lie instead. And when we don't acknowledge our own weaknesses, when we don't acknowledge uh, the red flags in our own lives, our own hearts, and confess them, we're opening ourselves up to attack, to danger. And so acknowledge and confess your desire to rule over your life. Number two, don't find your value and worth from man's empty praise. Now, what, what we see taking place in verses 24 through 26 is this, this Gideon's kind of request or even demand, you could say, for payment, for tribute. For, here's what I did. Pay me. Pay me for what I, what I did here. Now, like I said, even though Gideon knew the right words to say in the moment, his actions from this point forward were not backing it up. And instead, we see through his life, really his heart being exposed to what he truly desired. He wanted man's praise and for something that he really did not do in his own strength, his own power. Gideon, in this moment, was forgetting what God had done and instead was being consumed with his exploits, right? His chasing down the enemy, his capturing of the two kings, his execution of Midian's leaders, his vengeance upon these two Israelite cities that did not help us. And now all of Israel is seeing this and lifting him up and they're throwing down their gold and and kingly attire before him. It felt good in that moment. And I believe and he believed the lie that he had done all of this and was deserving of all of this of this payment and this tribute. In fact, he even was requesting it and demanding it. See, the more that we chase after man's empty praise, the more empty we become. Because we all have to rest, because all we have, if we're we're chasing after man's empty praise, all we then have to rest in is someone else's subjective opinion of you. Does that make sense? And for every person's subjective praise of you, you're also going to always find someone else's subjective criticism of you. And so if we're chasing after everyone's subjective opinions, well, then the question's got to be, well, who do we believe? Well, we'll naturally believe the person who's praising us, but what gives them any sense of authority for what they're saying is right? Who, who has to say what is right or wrong? See, boasting in our ability is, is comical when you really think about it. If, if we are created beings, which we are, then that means there is a creator who has given you your life. And that all ability that you have has been given to you. Any skill that you have has been given to you. We've been given all that we need to accomplish all that we have. And when we boast in ourselves, we're like that marathon runner uh, that I started the sermon with, unable to cross that finish line ourselves without the help of another. But then as we do, we're beating our chest as if we've done it ourselves without the help of anyone. And when, then when we demand the praises of others for what we think we did, but we didn't really do, that, that makes it even sadder. Uh, when you watch sports, I'm not a fan of, um, I'm not a fan of showboating. 
I don't like showboating in sports. It just, it, oh man, it just irritates me. Anytime an athlete's, you know, running on the court because they made a shot and they're beating their chest. Yeah, look what I did. Like, come on. Like, you watch, watch NBA games uh, <laughs> and, and you watch like the seven foot five guy dunk a ball and then run down the court like he's the greatest athlete on the face of the earth. And, and you're like, you know what you did? You went like this. Like, seriously, right? We got a two inch vertical there and then you dunked the ball. And then running down the court, like, look what I just did. Well, yeah, like, you, like, it's like me throwing a piece of trash away. Like, oh, I did that all myself, right? That's, that, like, you, you're, you're seven foot something tall. That's easy to do. Make the, make the rim 20 foot dunk it. Then I'll applaud you, right? Like, and, and so when, when they do that, you're just like, come on, man. Just, like, play the game. Stop boasting in yourself. What did you do in your life to make yourself seven foot five? You didn't do anything to make yourself seven foot five. You, you like existed and just grew, right? And, and now you're boasting in something you had no control over. See, rather than finding our value and worth from man's empty praise, our value and worth must be found in who God says we are, who God says you are. And we sung part of these things even this morning. You are a child of God, a son and a daughter. You're beloved. You're a saint. You're holy and blameless in his sight. You're blessed. You're forgiven. These are, these are words that, that, that God sings over his children, says this is who you are. There's your authority for finding your identity, your value, your worth in this world. We find it not from man's empty praise. We find it in our God who's created us. And this identity is given to us through repentance and faith in the person of Jesus Christ. That Jesus is the, is the one who gives our life value and meaning and worth. Because it's through faith in Jesus that we find our blessing. It's through faith in Jesus that we receive this inheritance. Our response to all that happens in our lives should only and always be one of gratitude and thankfulness to a God who is good and who loves to give his children good things. I love the Ephesians 1, just came to my mind, where it talks about his grace, and he uses this word I've just always loved, that his, he lavishes his grace upon us. It's our response has, must be, at all times, one of gratitude and thankfulness. See, it was the, the Apostle Paul who understood these things and knew these things, and knew that apart from Christ he was Nothing, which is why he could say in Galatians 6, but far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Our boasting as Christians is in the cross of Christ because it's in the cross that we find God's goodness. We find God's grace, his mercy. It's in the cross alone where we find our hope and purpose and meaning in this life. And so don't chase, don't pursue man's empty praise. Lastly, number three, we need to remove anything that does not stir your affections for God. In verses 27 through 28, it says, Gideon took all that was given to him, all the gold, all these kingly garments, and it says he made this, this ephod. Uh, an ephod was, was a, a priestly garment. There's not a ton of clarity uh, around what it, what it really was, what it was fully used for, even what the, the purpose behind it was. Some, some commentators will even say that, that it maybe meant different things to different cultures over different times. But what we can gather from, from the text is that it did hold some sort of religious and spiritual significance. And, and so we know this because of how Gideon and all of Israel responded to it. They responded in worship. 
So Gideon takes this ephod that he creates out of this gold and these garments, and he, he takes it to his home, and, and he takes it into his city. And, and we heard what, what Israel did. It says they, they hoard after it, meaning that they completely abandoned their God to worship at the altar of man. The man's accomplishments to worship at the altar of man's abilities. And that this ephod even, it says, became this snare to Gideon and, and to a snare to his entire family. Now, now Gideon here may have begun with good intentions, possibly. Maybe it was a way for him to uh, appear religious and to be, appear focused on God. We, we saw in verse 23, he knows the right thing to say. And so it could be as he's demanding tribute, okay, well, but here's what I'm going to do with this. And so it could be that he was, again, just living in this life of deception, not fully understanding the, the brokenness of his heart and how quickly his, his heart wants to absorb the spotlight. And so he, he focuses on his spiritual and uh, religious significance here, and he, but he's not acknowledging, I think, his own sinful desire for recognition, for praise. And, and because he failed to do, the, do so, this quickly, the text says, became something that ensnared him. He brought this temptation into his home, into his city. And over time, this, this idolatry, it, it choked him. It, it ensnared him, his entire family, to the point where they could not escape it. What have we seen throughout this series thus far? We, we've said this multiple times, that sin is radically set on owning and destroying you. So we must be radical in putting it to death and removing anything that's going to tempt us to wander away from our God. A weed left alone in a garden is not going to take long for it to overtake and overpower all the other plants and flowers. And if we don't rip that weed up from the, from the roots, it's just going to grow back. Any gardener knows that. Sin needs to be uprooted from our lives. And what I mean by that is, is that we're not just interested, as, as believers, we can't just be interested in curbing sinful behaviors, that, that we need to understand and get to the root of what's causing that sinful behavior to manifest in our life. And then we need to attack that root with the power of the gospel. So for example, uh, let's say you struggle with this uncontrollable anger. Let's say that's constantly manifesting. You have a short temper, a quick fuse, and you're constantly overreacting and sniping at people, uh, being snarky. You're You're just angry all the time when something doesn't go the way you want. Now, uncontrolled anger absolutely needs to be dealt with. It is sinful. But, but if we're only seeking to uh, address the symptom and not the root, it's not going to fix it. Learning breathing techniques or, or, or simple ways to just calm down when you feel it rising, that's not sufficient. That's not sufficient at killing the sin because it's not killing the sin. And it's because there's something stirring within your heart that's beneath the surface that is giving life and is feeding that anger. And you got to find out what is that idol. Is it the idol of control? Is it the idol of reputation? Is it the idol of pride? And so when those idols are attacked, when things seem out of your control, you, you react in anger, right? So you got you to deal with those idols, those root issues with the gospel. You got to uproot these things with the power of the gospel. This is going to be a daily battle for us as Christ followers. And we battle by God's grace. And we battle it by, and, and through the power of the, of the Holy Spirit. But we have to battle. 
We must remove anything in our lives that does not stir our affections for God. We must take our sins seriously or we will become ensnared to it just as Gideon did. And the consequences of it were devastating. So how do we guard our hearts? Gideon's trajectory was positive. <clears throat> he was trusting in his God. He was obedient, we saw in the first few chapters. He was, he was leading. How quick the, the road that leads to ruin. How quick that is. The, the moment we take our eyes off of our God, we instead place them on ourselves. And when that begins to take place, devastation is sure to follow. And so to guard ourselves, we need to acknowledge and confess your desire to rule over your life, to have the spotlight. Our hearts crave it. We've got we've to not find our value and our worth from man's empty praise, but rather be thankful and grateful for what God has done in our life and his goodness over us and to us. And then we need to remove anything that does not stir your affections for God and then refill it with that which does stir your affections for God. This is how we guard our hearts from that which Gideon fell ensnared to. Let's pray together.